Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. Glad that you are here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your love, and for your grace, for your mercy, for your goodness in our lives. And uh, we recognize that. We see it over and over again. We thank you for providing for us and taking care of us, for walking with us, for giving us life in Jesus Christ. And Father, as we study the Word of God this morning, we pray that your Spirit would teach us. We pray that not only this class, but the classes throughout the building this morning, we would understand the depth of what you've done for us on the cross, and that we would see that, and that uh, we would be overwhelmed by it. And we just ask that you would do that great work in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the depth of the work that Jesus has done on the cross, uh, it's a good thing to remind, be reminded every once in a while, and talk about every now and again. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. We stopped last week in this section. I want to pick it up here a little bit before we go on. Jesus was uh, betrayed. He was arrested. He was before Caiaphas. That's where we kind of stopped in Matthew 26. In verse 63, and Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I assure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The high priest then tore his robes and said, he is blaspheming. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. And then they spit on his face and beat him with their fist. And others slapped him and they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Well, we stopped last week and we were going to talk about was the essential doctrine last week was propitiation. And that's, uh, that's an incredibly uh, wonderful um, truth. And I want to touch on that before we go to this week's lesson. In our quarterly, it says this about... Christ as propitiation because of God's righteousness and holiness humanity's sins must be atoned for in order for people to be reconciled to God as the propitiation for sins Christ's death is the appeasement or the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin Christ's propitiation for our sins demonstrates both God's great love towards sinners as well as the necessary payment that results from the penalty of sins and this is a theological word you need to know, you need to understand, propitiation. We're going to look at a couple of verses with that. Um, we'll start with 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, and look at what it says um, in verse 10. It says, In this is love, not that we loved God, that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We read it over in chapter 2 also. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
Propitiation, the idea of propitiation is satisfaction. And the best way to do it is as, a, as what the quarterly said, actually, they did it incredibly well. It says, as the propitiation for sins, Christ's death is the appeasement or the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. That's what propitiation is. God's wrath was satisfied. And God's wrath is wrapped up against our sin. Okay? And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross and died for our sins, he appeased that wrath of God and he is our propitiation. And that is a word that you should know. It's a word that you should understand. It's a word that you should really enjoy. He is our propitiation. He satisfied God's wrath. Okay? And we'll look at that today a little bit further. But it's an important thing that we understand that that's what was going on with Jesus on the cross. God's wrath was being poured out upon Jesus. Okay? That's why Paul can then say in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for me. God's wrath is gone concerning me and my sin because of what Jesus Christ did. Okay? It's gone. And because he willingly did that for us. So understand that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is incredibly pregnant with meaning, if you will. It, it has so much to it. It is so incredibly large. And this idea of propitiation is the main aspect of it. Go to Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 21. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's the propitiation. It's fascinating that it uses this phrase in Romans whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. What Jesus Christ went through was an ordeal, and it was very public. From the time he was tried, uh, excuse me, arrested, and throughout all of what went on for the next handful of hours in that trial, and through the whippings and the beatings and the thorns on his, on his head and the slappings and the spitting and the tearing out of the beard uh, and his hair and everything that Isaiah prophesied, the carrying of the cross, uh, the nails, uh, the piercings, all of it, all of it, it was a public display. It was God, as much as God said through the angels, <clears throat> look, Messiah is born. He said a handful of years later, look, propitiation has taken place. It was a public deal. And he put it out there for all to see because he wanted all to know. 
Hebrews chapter 2. Beginning in verse number 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise always also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. To make propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. A perfect sacrifice is the only one that was ever going to be able to do that. One like us, Emmanuel. That's what he did for us. So, that is a great word. I hope that your Bible uses that word in those passages. If it doesn't, you need to you need to put the word in there when you come to it. Propitiation. It's the best word there is. Some versions will say satisfaction. Uh, Propitiation is the word. It's, it's the one. Okay, God's wrath satisfied. And that's what Jesus did for us. Well, as we continue along then in Matthew, so we are in Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> and as we continue looking at the suffering Savior, then as we turn the, um, go to chapter 27, what we see is um, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 27 is Judas comes to grips with what he did and, and, and he takes his own life. And then in the next um, section of Scripture, what we have is Jesus before Pilate. We have the crucifixion. And I'm going to do a little bit like I did last week, and then we're going to do something um, different. And what I did last week was I read all of the interesting um, things throughout the quarterly, the lesson of the quarterly, because I thought they were worthwhile, and, and I think they did it again this week. So I want to do that, and then we're going to read our passage. <clears throat> so all of it's about the trial and the crucifixion. And the things throughout the quarterly, the voices from, from church history or further commentaries, and they say this, somebody said this, <clears throat> he lost his own life in order to gain life for all. <clears throat> he preferred to be conquered in himself in order to be the victor in everyone. An aside, uh, an aside notes the Roman custom of releasing Jewish prisoners. And, and basically what it talks about is, as you read the scriptures there, it's, it's one of those just, oh, by the way, type thing. An aside notes the Roman custom of releasing Jewish prisoners at Passover as a goodwill gesture and adds that the Romans were holding the notorious Barabbas. When Pilate offers the crowd their choice of Barabbas or Jesus, he probably thinks they will prefer Jesus. Don't you think that... that with every fiber of Pilate's being, he thought that they would prefer Jesus over Barabbas? Absolutely. There was no doubt in his mind. I'm going to get out of this thing. I have finally figured out the way to do it. I have to. I'm obligated to release one prisoner during this time. I will give them the choice of Jesus, who we hear all sorts of good things about, 
And in fact, all the people that came in couldn't even bring any good lies against him. Or Barabbas, who is a known, terrible, horrible, rotten person. Okay? Pilate perceives that there will, there's no substantial charge against Jesus and that envy motivates the leaders. Many ancient manuscripts have Barabbas' full name as Jesus Barabbas. This makes an explicit contrast between Jesus Barabbas, which may mean son of the father or son of the teacher, and Jesus who is called the Messiah. And there was their choice, Jesus or Barabbas, and the crowd said, we want Barabbas. What an amazing thing when you think about that those folks were just not too long ago shouting Hosanna in the streets. R.C. Sproul said this, I do not believe this picture of humanity was ever more clearly displayed than the day in Jerusalem in front of the governor's palace, uh, governor's place when the people had opportunity to make an exchange. Tragically, they swapped the Son of God for a hardened criminal. They traded the only begotten of the Father for a pretender, the Son of the Father for the Son of the Father. The Son of the Father in caps for the Son of the Father in lowercase. James Montgomery Boyce has said the full text of the sign that was put above his head might have read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This important thing is that Jesus was killed for claiming to be the Messiah. Okay, and that's exactly what he was claimed for, right? He was killed for claiming to be the Messiah. He said, tell us, are you? He said, you've said it. Okay? which is exactly what he was. He was rejected as king by both the Jews and the Romans, but, the, but he lives today as the only true ruler of all people, whether Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. Jesus is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. Thomas Aquinas has said this, the cross to me is certain salvation. The cross is that which I ever adore. The cross of the Lord is with me. The cross is my refuge. And then Isaac, wrote, Isaac Watts wrote this, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Andrew Murray said, In that blood dwelt the soul of the Holy Son of God. And somebody has said, Through the passion of his Christ, the Father turns evil back on itself thereby overcoming and defeating it decisively and climatically. It is perhaps the best theodicy, it is, excuse me, it is perhaps that the best theodicy is discovered right here in the cross work of the Savior. Look what he did on the cross, our propitiation. Our Lord is both our model, obedient and uncomplaining as he serves the Father, who no matter what the cost and our Savior who offers himself to the sins of the world. He said, I will do it. I will do it. And he did it for us. He did it for us. So you're in Matthew already. <clears throat> and we're going we're gonna to read some, some passages this morning. Beginning in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. While he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast that the governor was accustomed to release for the people, any one prisoner whom they wanted, and at that time they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. 
while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, Crucify him. <clears throat> he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. And this is really one of those most remarkable passages that the people had a choice and they obviously were spurred on by, as it says here, the chief priest and the elders. But they had a choice and they chose Barabbas. And then when the question was asked, what do you want us to do with Jesus? There was a lot of things that could have been done with Jesus. And they said, crucify him. We need him killed. We need him done away with. We need to have him out of our way. And so crucify him. And when you think about what it is that Jesus did, and hopefully, you know, you've pondered last week and then a little today, understand that Jesus was listening to all of this. For all we know, he was out on, in front of the people with Pilate, and he said, do you want him? Do you want him? And he heard and saw the people say, we want him. And he heard and saw the people say, we'll crucify him then. We don't know that for sure, but I don't know. But we know that he was there, and he knew what was going on. And we knew that we know that they then said, "Crucify him." We are going to take the time this morning to read every gospel account of the crucifixion, and it's something that we need to read every now and again. We celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, so that works out quite well, and uh, it's just good stuff to be reminded every now and again. So, Matthew chapter twenty-seven, beginning at verse twenty-seven. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and they put on his own garments back on him and they led him away to crucify him. Uh, this will be the last time I talk during our reading. Um, can you imagine the great restraint of Jesus? We talked about that a little bit last week when they came to arrest him. The great restraint of Jesus allowing people to do this to him. Why? Because he knew he was the propitiation. Yeah, it's God's will. As they're coming out, they found a man of Serene named Simon, whom they passed in a service, pressed in a service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests 
also along with the scribes and the elders were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come now, now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and they appeared to many. And a centurion and those who were with him kept guard over Jesus. And when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Mark chapter 15. Beginning at verse 16. The soldiers took him away into that that palace, that is the Praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and they put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed in a service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Serene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, deciding what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on the right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and, they number, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders heard it. They began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was a son of God. Luke chapter 23 Beginning in verse 26. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Serene, Serene coming from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. They came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, You Do you... Not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now the centurion, now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. John chapter 19. <clears throat> beginning at verse 16. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. <clears throat> they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate said, What I have written, I have written. 
And the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, they took his outer garments and they made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar of, full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the Spirit. <clears throat> An illustration adapted by someone named C. Truman Davis, who was a, a doctor, wrote this, What is crucifixion? A medical doctor provides a physical description. The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square-wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels searing agony of the nails tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the, sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the Pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compression, the compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Finally, he can allow his body to die. <clears throat> in all of this, the Bible records with the simple words, and they crucified him. What wondrous love is this?
he became sin for us. Turn with me to that verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to read it. I want you to see it. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5. You may have it memorized. I know you've heard it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Propitiation. God could have saved people by saying, you, 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 whatever, down through the ages, you're saved. Required nothing of me, requires nothing of you, you're saved. He could have saved people like that. God can do anything God wants. But from the very beginning of Genesis, we see that God, God laid out sacrifices. And he began to teach us about sacrifices all through the Old Testament. So that when Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross, we understood sacrifice. We understood somebody dying in our place. And I say all that to make sure that we understand, and it's a good day for us to remember that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is that the, the price that Jesus Christ paid, the process whereby God laid out that Jesus walked through was a painful, difficult, horrible process that we might have our sins forgiven. I want to talk about a couple of things here real quick, and then we're going to wrap up. The darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you read Psalm 22, you'll read some of that stuff. You'll read about the psalmist saying, this is what's going to happen to the Messiah someday. Psalm 22 is all about that. And you'll read that that was going to happen. <clears throat> I, I, I believe with all of my heart, I am convinced that for those hours on, when Jesus Christ was on the cross... During that time of darkness, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was then that 2 Corinthians 5.21 came into play in a dramatic way that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And the Father turned his back on him. And for the first time in, in all of his non-created eternal being, he was alone. forsaken because God's wrath was being poured out on him and I have also believed with all my heart since the day I understood any kind of theology at all that on that day on that cross God saw me and God saw you as a believer and he died for us pretty amazing isn't it He became, he was, he became sin. He was the propitiation for us. Real quick, let's talk about the veil being torn in two. A couple of the passages we read talked about that. So the veil that they're talking about, you understand, was the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. So what it, this was the massive curtain that, that 
that stopped the priest from going into where the Shekinah glory of God was in the Holy of Holies. Once a year, with a rope tied around him and a bell on him so that they knew he was still alive in case something happened, they would pull him out with the rope. He'd go in once a year and he would make atonement. Okay? Holy of Holies. And that gigantic veil was that massive, constant reminder that there's a barrier between us and God. And what is that barrier? Sin. That barrier between us and God. And nothing ever removed that barrier. The priest would go in and do his thing, but that barrier stayed. And he had to go in and do his thing over and over again because the barrier stayed. Okay? And the Bible says that that veil was torn in two. Now, there's a lot of different uh, information you can get on the veil about what it was and how big it was and all of that. And there's a lot of debate, quite honestly, about it. It, it. They're kind of all over the map there. Seems to me, in my in my reading and research and stuff over the years, that, that what it is is that the, that the veil was 30 feet high. Okay? There's a massive amount of debate about how thick it was. Some say one, some say four inches thick. Okay? I don't really think it matters which one that is. That's massive. There's no debate about the fact that it took 300 of the priests 300 of the Levites who are in the priestly, 300 of them to take care of the veil. Okay? Massive. So let's assume that, we're, that it's 30 feet high. As I recall, uh, Ralph, is it, Ralph, this is, isn't this 2019? From here to the right, 19 or something? To the peak, I think, from here to the peak. So go up again. All right? Huge. How does something like that, that big, tear open? Yeah, top to bottom. How does that happen? Here's the interesting thing about this, okay? Now, I want you to ponder this for a moment, okay? Those who were, uh, who were against Christ, those who were all about inciting the crowds to incite, those who were all about getting him to die, those who were in positions of power and authority, once the veil split open, what did they do next? Did they repair it? Did they close that baby back up? Did they fix it? Did they, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I don't have an answer. I'm just saying, can you imagine all of a sudden the veil is open, there's the Holy of Holies. What we know is that they did not abandon their system and run to Jesus. Okay? And yet there was that graphic, undeniable fact. Something amazing happened that day. God split that veil. And what he said was, <clears throat> the barrier is gone. Jesus Christ took care of it. Isn't that an amazing, remarkable thing? And the words that Jesus Christ uttered on that cross that we read in John, when he said, it is finished, it is finished. The way to God has been laid out. It needs no adjustments it needs no rearranging. It needs no addition. It needs no subtraction. The way to God has been laid out. Jesus Christ made it very clear. It is finished.
this is the way to God. And this is the absolute only way to God. Yes? Right, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Sure it is. Isn't it, she says, isn't that about propitiation? Absolutely it is, because it's, it's God making a way for God and men to have peace finally. Absolutely it's about propitiation. Absolutely. Some, you know, Christmas season's over. And I know, you know we have this thing about playing Christmas songs outside of Christmas season, but there's some of the, the most deeply theologically wonderful songs you will ever come upon, most of them. <laughs> there's a few, but most of them, all right? Pretty amazing. Real quick, the essential doctrine in this class then. The essential doctrine in last week's lesson was propitiation. The essential doctrine in this particular lesson is substitutionary atonement. Another phrase you need to know. Another truth you need to embrace. Substitutionary atonement. What is it that makes Christianity different than every other system of religion anywhere one of them is substitutionary atonement. There's a couple. One of them is he's alive. One of them is that he became like us. Substitutionary atonement. Okay? I don't have to die for my own sins. Jesus did that for me. Substitutionary atonement. If I understand the depths of substitutionary atonement, if you believe in substitutionary atonement, you have to throw works out of the picture. You cannot embrace substitutionary atonement and then say that I need to jump through these hoops in order to be saved. Because then you're not saying that you believe in substitutionary atonement. Okay? You're saying that Jesus did die, but he didn't die completely for me. He didn't pay the price. I'm going to pay the price by jumping through some hoops. Okay? Substitutionary atonement is an incredibly important process, uh, verse. We look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of those verses. Let's look at a couple real quick. Go to 1 Peter chapter, or actually go to Hebrews, and then we'll go to 1 Peter. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. It says very clearly in Hebrews 9.28, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. He died for others. He bore the sins of, uh, for others. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. In chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay? Substitutionary atonement. In the Bible, we, we see glimpses of that. Think in the, in the terms of, of, of Genesis. And then you go into Leviticus and you, and you see all of that. But specifically in Genesis, what's the big uh, shadow of that? Substitutionary atonement. Abraham, very good. Abraham and Isaac and the ram. Substitutionary atonement. Okay? 
And, and it's, so it's taught, it's, it's, it's foreshadowed, if you will, in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament we come and, and here it is. We see it in Leviticus over and over again. Substitutionary atonement. Isaiah talks a little bit about it. It's an incredibly important thing to understand that he died for our sins. Okay, Here's the thing that's important. The fact that Jesus Christ, a man who was called Jesus, was tried, was beaten, was whipped, was offered to the people for release. The fact that he had to go and he was put on that cross and he was crucified and that he died, the fact that all of that happened is a historical fact. There's not dispute about that. Jesus did that. What saves us? is our belief that what? He did it for me. He died for me. Substitutionary atonement. See, that's the thing. This is an incredibly important thing that we understand. He did it for me. He didn't just do it. He did it for me. That's the faith. And that's what changes things. Okay? What we've done the last two weeks are remarkable, remarkable passages of Scripture. Remarkable. And I hope that you read them once in a while and I hope that you just love them and that you just think they're the coolest thing in the world because absolutely they are. But the Gospel doesn't stop with Jesus dying on the cross, does it? And so next week, we'll look at the resurrection. Father, thanks for our time together this morning. Thank you very much for laying out for us so clearly so understandably that we can grasp propitiation. We can grasp substitutionary atonement. We get it. There it is. And Father, on a morning like this, once again, we're reminded how incredibly wonderful it is that you do this for us. And that we can have hope that there is more beyond this life. That when we take our last breath on this earth, we're taking our first breath with you in a place called heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us. We pray in his name. Amen.